0: take your bibles head to 1st samuel 1st samuel chapter 18 19 we'll throw 17 in there maybe even go to 13 14 now that you're panicking We're just going to be highlighting several different passages. Um, We're in the series on the life of David, and let me remind you about something that happened historically. Up in the northwest corner of the United States, about Washington and Vancouver, where they combined together, back in 1859, there was a dispute over San Juan Island. And the reason there was this dispute is the Oregon Treaty didn't really clarify whose San Juan Island was, British or American. So they both had governors there. And the several hundred people that were there was a mixture of Americans and British. And something happened that was so minor, but it exploded because they didn't address it for a number of years. And so what happened, it's called the Pigs' War, and there was an instance where a Lyman Cutler, who lived next, he was an American, lived next door to a British individual. The British individual's pig got loose from its cage, came over, and was eating in Cutler's garden. So Cutler shot the pig. Well, the British governor issued a warrant for Cutler's address, uh, arrest and ordered that he would pay back to his neighbor the cost of the pig. He refused to do it. So the British contacted all the way back into England and they sent a few troops. The Americans responded by sending a few more troops. Within weeks, George Pickett, who was famous for Gettysburg, uh, this was prior to that, he shows up with 2,000 troops of Americans. Now it's really escalating. The British responded with five warships, another 2,000 of their troops. And they were told that they need to invade. The Americans were told, we are going to defend and George Pickett's comments, we will defend to our very last breath and keep the British from landing their troops. Well what happened is there was one sane individual in this whole escalating effect and it was the British Admiral who was on the ships. He said, this is ridiculous, we're having a war over a pig. So he kept the men on board for several weeks, and finally then calmer heads prevailed. But they never resolved the issue until 13 years later, and then the San Juan Island came into the United States possession. But it's crazy how little things can escalate into something major, And they prevented it. But in 1 Samuel chapter 17, 18, 19, 20 and beyond, it doesn't get prevented. It starts uh, with that story of David and Goliath. We all know the story. We know how there's, uh, David is, is going to be the hero in the story and we talked about King Saul has been king for 25 years about this time. And then what happens is he has been told already that he and his heirs, they're not going to be able to live out their dynasty. They're going to be replaced because Saul has sinned against God. And in the meantime now, just weeks before David and Goliath's account, David, who is around that 15, 16 years of age, he has been secretly, secretly anointed by the prophet as the future king. And then what happens is David is uh, somewhere engaged here. Now you read in chapter 17, the second half of the story, that David is going to be involved in playing the harp in Saul's court. We really don't know when that happened, as I'll explain in a few moments. Was it before Saul, uh, Goliath, or after Goliath? There's the debate that happens on both sides. And what happens is David is, for the most part, spending time in the fields watching the sheep. And dad says to him, okay, The Philistines have invaded. Goliath has made his challenge. David, you take care packages to your brothers. Let them know that we're thinking about them. So David shows up as a teenager with the care packages for his older brothers. Here's Goliath. He's offended by Goliath's insults against God. And David goes out to, uh, to fight Goliath. We, we talked about that two weeks ago. And it's a mismatch. It is just, you know, you got this big guy that, again, only to get the perspective that it doesn't look big until you get perspective that Goliath is at least that tall. He could be another foot taller easily by the measurement. And so it's a mismatch of what they do in the battlefield. And you all know the story. It's a great victory. David takes out Goliath, knocks him down to stone, then runs up and takes off his head. And so the uh, result is, David's going to be rewarded by the king. And so we read in chapter 17, towards the end of the story, it says, verse 54, David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said, whose son is this youth? And Abner says, as your soul lives, O king, I cannot tell. The king inquired, thou, whose son this stripling or the young lad is? And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of thy servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. And as we go through that story, some of you are wondering right away, well, wait a minute. Why is Saul asking who David is if he played the harp before? And so just to give you an answer, because some of you in your Bible study, you're going to run into this. This is one of the passages that several critics say, see the Bible's filled with mistakes. It really isn't. It, it makes perfect sense when you look at the passage a little bit more in its context. It's not that, that, that there's inconsistencies. What it could have, be real is things aren't happening in chronological order. Maybe David hadn't played uh, in the court yet. We're not sure about that. We know that some things recorded here are not in chronological order. I just read a verse that's not in chronological order, where it says that David took the head of the Philistine to Jerusalem, and then it says a little bit later that he returns to Saul's tent. It can't be both. And at this time, the Jews don't even, they aren't even occupying Jerusalem, and so it's talking about David doing that in the future, right in the middle of a passage that's talking about present time. Uh, we know as well that several years could have passed. David could have played in the court when he was 13, 14 years old. Now he's 16 years old. Do people change in size or looks from teen, in their teen years? Most of us prayed we would have changed more, okay, But it happens, and sometimes you don't recognize. There's this possibility. Saul didn't remember who David was. It's been three, four years. He doesn't remember, and there's lots of other people who come and go in the court. That could be a reality. Have you forgotten people that you had been in contact with a year ago, but you haven't now, and you say, what's their name again? So that could be the case. Saul is imbalanced, and so getting Saul to remember anything could be an issue. Or let's take the, the real clarity of the passage. Saul isn't asking who the kid is. Saul is asking who his father is. Why is that? If you back up to chapter 17, verse 25, the father of the one who would all of a sudden provide victory, he would be relieved of his taxes. So it was a family blessing, and he's saying, I want to reward David's father and the household, so tell me who his father was. So there's no conflict in the text. It makes perfect sense these things happen that Saul is making the inquiry. Fact is this. David comes and he's taken to the court. You read the next few verses. He's taken to the court he now lives in uh, the capital with Saul where he has established his capital and he's become very very involved in the court system. He's a very close personal friend with, with Jonathan, the prince, the uh, heir to be in the future if Saul's family were to continue, which they won't. And so David has become very good friends with him. David is becoming very popular. You read through that the servants in verse 5, they, the soldiers, they accept David, they love David, and as a result, the people love him. Go down to chapter 18. And it says very clearly, all of Israel and all of Judah love David. And so David's the new man on the block, the new kid on the block. They even write songs about him. And when they write these songs, songs by the way that are so contemporary so popular, so broadcast that the Philistines know about the songs and bring this up several years later. So David's, David's got songs that are in the top 40. He's, just, he's this popular guy. And everybody likes David. Everybody but one. Okay? There is one person that doesn't like him. Before we develop that story, let's just pause for a second. David has risen from the back fields of the hills of Bethlehem. Now he's in the prime of Israel's spotlight. And he is doing good. It says in this text that the Lord is with him. The Lord is blessing him. He is acting wisely. I'm, I'm really, I am amazed by this. A 16-year-old kid getting all this popularity and he's, he handles it well. You know, there are possibilities that in our American culture that young men who just get out of college and get million-dollar contracts with the major sports networks, that they, 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 it goes to their head. They don't handle it wisely. David is. David is this individual who is all of a sudden, he's, he's, living, he's living the blessed life, but he's showing a humble, godly spirit. He, it says that he behaved himself wisely. Saul saw he behaved himself wisely. In verse 23, when he is going to be rewarded by marrying one of the king's daughters, he says, who am I to be one from the sheep fields, to be married to the royalty of Israel? True humility. As well, it keeps on saying, the Lord is with David. No one ever says. David is just this arrogant, this proud, obnoxious teenager who thinks he's the gift to the world. Nobody says that. Everybody likes him. David is a good guy. David is a good kid. David is a young man that's, he's just, he's been kissed on the cheek by God and he is blessed in a wonderful way. But I said this already, that not everybody likes him. There's one person who should owe a lot to to him, but he doesn't like him. It's King Saul. David has all of a sudden had victories. He goes out to battle, and Saul even puts him over the troops. But as Saul puts him over the troops, we start reading this, that the crowds gather together when Saul and David come back with the big army. David's only one of the generals, if you would. And they come back, and in chapters 18. We read that they're coming back to the capital and it came to pass as they came when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine That the woman came out all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul With their tablets and joy The the, the hometown bands are lining up with instruments and music and the women are coming out to greet these heroes that have defeated the Philistines Saul at the head David shortly behind And the woman, they sing songs. They say, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And immediately it strikes Saul. Verse 8, he was very wrath or angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but a thousands. And what more can he have but my kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. What do you call this? Yeah. Yeah. It's jealousy. It's envy of the heart that all of a sudden here he is. Saul is really jealous of this young man. And he is angry. He feels threatened by David. He even says the only thing that David can get from me now is not just the love of the people, but he could take my kingdom. And I remind you, Saul knows that somebody is coming to take his kingdom. He's been told it's going to be taken away from him. The prophet declared that. So what does he do? He eyes David from that day forward. And isn't it amazing how when a little bit of jealousy creeps in, what does it usually do? It spreads. It grows. To the point that a little bit of jealousy starts expanding and exaggerating situations. And and it just builds within the heart of the individual. And so here we have this growing jealousy, something that is small, the pig war that develops into a tremendous problem. It it is amazing that what happens is is Saul is so angry, and I want to, I'm not excusing Saul, I want to put it in context. He's worked hard for the kingdom. He's put his life on the line for the last 20 years. He did battles. He, this was his whole life. But it's gone because his heart has turned away from the Lord and somebody else is going to replace him. And now all of a sudden he sees, it says in the text, look at it says, he sees that the Lord is with David and the Lord has left him. So he understands what this is. He knows what's going on. And we read in the text, he becomes afraid of David because the Lord was with David and had departed from Saul. And it goes a little bit further. When Saul saw David behaving himself wisely, he was afraid of him. And it goes a little bit further that it talks about how, how he is so fearful, so suspicious, so um, jealous of David, so threatened by David, that David's going to replace him. He's got to take this, he's got to get rid of David. Instead of, by the way, he should have known this is God's leading. God has told him, but he's going to fight it. And he's going to resent what God is doing. And so he tries to get rid of David. That's chapters 18, 19, going into chapters 20. It's the story of how David is going to be attacked time after time after time. It starts off in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Jump down to verse 10 and watch how he's going to get rid of David. It came to pass on the morrow that an evil spirit from God came upon Saul. He prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand, and as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall. And David avoided out of his presence how many times? Twice. Okay, we'll come back to that after a little bit. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. So he tries to personally kill David. Go down to verse 13. Therefore Saul removed him from him, got rid of him, made him captain over a thousand, and he went out and came before the people. David is now leading troops. Why did Saul do that? Jump down to verse 17, the middle of the verse. For Saul said... Let not my hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. How is he going to get rid of David? Put him in the midst of a battle and let him get killed. Oh, by the way, by the way, just as a, an aside, who does this later on? David does the very same thing. Isn't that interesting? David is, David is put in the front and thick of the battle. That's how Saul's going to get rid of him. And then it's not only there, but we read a little bit further. We read Michael, Saul's daughter loves David. And they told Saul the thing and he said, "Ah, I got an idea. I know how to get rid of him. I am going to say that if you want to marry my daughter, here's the dowry. You have to take the life of a thousand Philistines. You got to go out, kill them. And you need to bring back body parts to prove that you've destroyed the thousand Philistines. He's sure that David's going to get defeated in battle and so what he does, his, David goes out, he kills a thousand Philistines comes back, Saul has to give the daughter because he's, he's got he's to save face do, politicians do this once in a while okay? they save face and so what happens is David, it says, he gets him but look at the verse 29 it says, and Saul was yet the more afraid of David and Saul became David's enemy how long? for the rest of the life, continually. But that's not the end of the story. We go into the next section of the story in chapter 19. Jonathan, he mediates and says, Dad, please don't promise not to kill David. Let David come back. He's your son-in-law. Come on, let's, let's work this out. Sure, he can come back. He can come to the court. And so he comes back to the court and it says, that David is there, he's leading some troops, things have calmed down, and David's successful, but an evil spirit from the Lord, verse 9, was upon Saul. He sat in his house with his javelin in his hand, and David played with his hand. By the way, if you were David, and Saul is playing with his javelin, what would you watch out of the corner of your eye? You'd watch Saul, okay? Because he's tried to kill you two times before. Look at the passage. And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with a javelin. But he slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smote the javelin into the wall. David fled and escaped that evening. So here he is trying to kill him again. But he's not done. What it says in verse 11, it says that David goes to his own house. (coughs) and he's with Saul's daughter, Michael, his wife. He's in their bedchamber, and it reads in verse 11, Saul sends messengers. That's what the King James reads. Does anybody have another translation that reads? Okay, he sends his troops, his assassins is the idea he's sending his assassins unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you save not your life tonight, by tomorrow you're going to be dead. So Michael helps David slip out of the window of the house from the bedroom. He flees, he gets out, and then she goes to the troops that are there to kill David and says, David is sick, you can't see him. And she, she, she holds back the troops, delays them, and gives David enough time that David flees. And gets out of the area totally. So this is your father-in-law. Well, maybe some of you say, yeah, I can relate. <laughs> okay. This is your father-in-law trying to kill you. And not only does he try to kill you, he hires assassins. He's, he's time and again. This has escalated beyond control. But it's not done. Read the rest of the chapter. David runs to the area of Naoth where he joins the prophet Samuel. Samuel is worshiping the Lord And so Saul, he hears that David's down in Naoth. So he sends troops again to kill David. And this is going to be a terrible thing because if they're going to attack David, which prophet is going to be there to defend David? Samuel, because Samuel anointed David. And so this is going to become a nightmare for Saul religiously. And so he sends the troops, they get down there. When the troops get there, all of a sudden the Spirit of God takes over the troops and basically immobilizes them. They can't hurt David. They just start prophesying, the idea could be, they start praising God and worship takes over. And Saul hears that his troops have been immobilized by the Spirit of God, protecting David. Again, if you were Saul and you knew Jehovah and you understood that God has intervened and God has spiritually moved your troops that they couldn't harm David, what would you think? You'd better stop. But Saul sends a second army down there. Sends the troops down. They come, they arrive, and guess what happens to them? The Spirit of God takes over, they become like their other troops, and all of a sudden they can't do anything. So Saul, in his great wisdom, sends a third troop down. And they come down there. They're overcome. Then Saul finally says, I'm going to come down there and I'm going to handle this myself. When he gets there, the Spirit of God takes over to him and immobilizes him. And David is able to escape. Saul is crazy. Saul is nuts. Oh, Pennsylvania Dutch. He's nuts. Okay. He's just, he's a, he, he is, this is just beyond belief what he's done. It has escalated to this very point. It's amazing it's absolutely amazing and this starts the new chapter of David's life for a period of probably about 15 years David is a fugitive and he gathers around him David's mighty army that takes over the next few chapters of the book where David is an adult and he has he fights the Philistines protects Israel but he is also running from Saul anyway the story has a lot of details that we should just pause for a second these aren't the main idea but let me point out a few things After a major victory, mark it down, there's going to be challenges. (coughs) That's true in all of our lives. (coughs) David (coughs) had won a major, major victory. But that didn't mean his battles were over. You know, some people say, I get saved and all of my battles are done. I get baptized and I'll never have trials again. I got married to the most wonderful person in the world. And we have dedicated our life and our kids to the Lord. Everything's going to be great. After every major victory, there's going to be challenges. It happens. We know that from David's life. We know this from Saul's life. Unchecked jealousy and anger leads to destruction. It leads to oftentimes to self-destruction. You know, we have a tendency of minimizing jealousy. We have this idea that it's not so bad. (coughs) We joke about it. We don't, we don't see it as something that's evil. We, we let it in our lives without too much difficulty. But it's really bad. It's a bad all sin is bad, but this is one of the bad ones. Okay, This is right up there. How do I know that? A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. He goes on, he says, and, and watch the context where he puts jealousy in. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting or drunkenness or in immorality or wantonness not in strife and envying along with immorality jealousy is ranked right there here's the text surely resentment destroys the fool and jealousy kills the simple here's a verse you are not yet carnal for there is among you envying and strife and divisions are you not carnal and walk as men this is to a church This is to believers that were jealous and envious. This is totally opposite of what love is. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. If you sit here and say, I am a loving Christian, but you are envious of others, jealous of others, you're not a loving Christian. Those two cannot cannot reside in the same heart and beat before God. But yet again, we minimize it. We say, oh, well, it's not that. Irma Bombeck, to just, you know, that great theologian, just to be able to put it in perspective. She says, this is the way a lot of people, you know, they they don't want to bring themselves out, you know, say, I'm envious. Lord, if you cannot make me thin, at least make all my friends look fat. Okay, that was her idea of how many people approach jealousy. That they just kind of change the scope of it. But you and I have to stop and say, wait a minute, jealousy is really bad. It destroys people. Cain... Was jealous. It led to killing his brother. The the Herod was jealous of Jesus. It led to killing babies. We read the, that the Jewish leaders were jealous of Jesus. It led to death. It leads to self destruction. Daniel's coworkers were jealous of him. They wanted to put him into a uh, into a den of lions to kill him, and they didn't think uh, they didn't bat an eye about it. But we all know what happened. Tables were turned and they were killed by those lions before they hit the floor. We all know and some of you have even seen the new Esther program. How Haman becomes jealous of Mordecai and that he tries to get the destruction of Mordecai and it ends up in the end who hangs on on the gallows? It's Haman himself. Jealousy is dangerous. Jealousy is a cancer of the spirit that is so often coddled by people who come to church, who worship. And it's, it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. We're not immune from it. It can happen. By, by the way, I can stand here and say I have never, ever been jealous of professional wrestlers. <laughs> so I'm not a jealous person. I have never been jealous of weightlifters. I have never been jealous of any Olympic athlete. That's true. I have never been jealous of any Olympic athlete. This is why, okay? <laughs> we get jealous in our realm. I'm not jealous of, in all sincerity, I joke about it, I am not jealous over, uh, with musicians, that's not me. I'm not a musician. Can I struggle with jealousy towards preachers? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I struggle with jealousy in my family where I, where I connect with people? Absolutely. And so can you. You pick your realm. And just because we don't have jealousy and it's something that is remote, that doesn't mean we're okay. Okay. We have to come down to where, is it, where are we living? And then we have to weed it out. L- let me give you some samples of examination that you might want to do. A- ask yourself, do you secretly regret the success of friends around you? Not strangers, but of friends. Have you ever had this moment where you believe and you, you talk about it in private? I could have done a better job than so and so. Because you really believe you're much better than them. Have you ever had this uh, time where you're complimenting somebody to another person. You know they are a really nice person. They're this, they're that but and then you point out things that you don't like about them because you're jealous of them. Have you ever had this you've complained about how your co-workers get complimented or they are appreciated, but you're not. Have you ever had these moments where you question what, why people are kind to you? They're, they're generous to you. They're kind to you. And you're jealous of them, and so you start wondering about their motives, why they do what they do. Have you ever had this time where all of a sudden... You hear about family members, you hear about friends, or you hear about family members and their kids, and they're excelling in something, and you do not rejoice in their excelling. You all of a sudden find fault in them or their kids, and you can't figure out why they're doing better than you did. Have you ever had this where you begrudge others getting things that you might have had? Uh, Last week, Jealousy came to the forefront in my heart. We're gathered together as a family, and we're talking about dividing my parents' things in their house. I had determined before we went out, we had talked about it. We don't want anything. There was just a couple items my mom and dad said that we could have. We don't want anything. We don't need anything. We traveled there with a vehicle with the idea that we're not going to bring anything. We didn't take a U-Haul or a trailer. And yet, when other relatives were taking things that I didn't want, my spirit said, how come they're getting it? Why do they get it? And it was like, doggone it. That's wrong. That's a jealous spirit. I didn't want it. I didn't prepare to take it, so why, did, why can't they have it? Because they're getting something more than I am. Who do they think they are? Better than me? Yeah, they are. Go and let them have it. But that jealousy creeps up on us and we justify it so quickly. We all of a sudden do these things. Instead of congratulating somebody on doing a job really good and you're jealous that they did such a good job, you just don't thank them. Don't congratulate them. Or you are giving into the spirit where you are quicker at criticizing than praising people. And you have developed that type of an attitude, that type of conduct. Or maybe you're one of those that, you know, you get upset by the success of other individuals. We, we this, this, jealousy, examine, take the word of the mirror, the mirror of God's word and say, what is my heart? You get jealous that people don't work as long as you do. They don't have as much, uh, much responsibility as you. And you're jealous that they get, you get jealous over the looks that some people have, the appearance, the beauty, the, the, the money that they have, the success that they have. Some will drive in and they get upset that so-and-so has a really nice car. So what? But we get jealous. We get jealous that all of a sudden at church somebody's name is mentioned but mine wasn't. It creeps in. And it's so destructive. It's like that old story that, that was told in Moody's books that he said he got from some Indian about this eagle that was flying, and he had, a, a, he had another eagle friend that could fly a little bit better. And he got jealous how the, even though they could soar great heights, that one could soar a little bit higher than him, a little bit faster. And so he saw a way of getting rid of that eagle that he was jealous of. He saw a hunter out in the field one day. So he has a conversation with the hunter. And he says, why don't you shoot down that bird? You're out hunting. And the hunter said, I would if I had a really good feather. The eagle offered him one of his good feathers. He put it on the arrow, shot, missed. So the bird keeps on offering feather after feather after feather. And eventually, can't fly, falls victim to the hunter. That's the way jealousy affects us. That it destroys us. Can we we just move a little bit further? Not everyone's going to appreciate you. In fact, there's going to be moments that somebody, if you're like a David and you're doing right, they might attack you. And their attacks could be like what they did to Jesus. Jesus was ministering, was doing good, and they didn't like it. They didn't like that Jesus was addressing the sinful crowd and seeing people change. So they attack. You're, you're doing ministry. You're serving. You're reaching out, and some get upset at you. They get jealous of you, and then the attacks start intensifying. Or you're like our brother's who were the first apostles, as they ministered, all of a sudden others were jealous of them. The Sanhedrin brings them in and brings it to the point of persecution and beating. Whatever the level is, we know that we're not going to be appreciated. In fact, it says in 1 Peter, wherein they think it's strange, the Gentiles, the world, that you don't (coughs) run with them with the same excess of riot while they speak evil of you. Why aren't you doing the same ungodly things that are destroying our lives? We ran into that with some of our relatives. Why aren't you, why aren't you guys drinking and doing drugs and ending up in jail like the rest of us? Do you think you're better than us? was like, what? that makes no sense. You know, why aren't you having as many divorces and remarriages and, and you know, unwed pregnancies? Why aren't you doing that like we are? And they were jealous that you know, some in our family were serving the Lord and they had stable homes. It'll happen. It'll happen. It'll happen to you. It'll happen to others. But here's the principle. And let's talk this through. You need to always do right like David did. This is the real crux of the story. Always do right even when you're done wrong. Always do right, even when you're done wrong. Always do what David did. What did he do? Quick observations David behaved himself wisely. Time and time again, David did exactly (coughs) what was the wise thing to do. And I remind you, I remind you, biblical wisdom is this biblical wisdom is applying God's word to your life, it is doing what God's word says. It is responding the way God's word says. It is reacting the way God's word says. It is living the way God's word says. Even if they're jealous, even if they attack, do right when others do you wrong by behaving yourself wisely. Number two, David did not, and this, your notes might be a little bit out of order on a couple of these <coughs> than what I finished up with. David did not retaliate. This is, this is my human spirit. None of, none of you would do this. But i got to tell you, if I was playing the harp, which certainly wouldn't have calmed Saul so down, that would have given him you know, more cause. But if I was playing the harp and somebody threw a spear at me, my flesh would want to, oh, I am not the only one in this room. Okay? My flesh would want to throw the spear right back. Maybe I wouldn't throw the sharp end, but I'd still throw something at him. David doesn't. David doesn't do it. David doesn't revolt against the king. Think this through. David already knows he is anointed to be the next king. He knows he's replacing Saul. Couldn't he have said, let's do it now? Couldn't he have rallied other people? He doesn't do it because it's not right. It's not the right time. He doesn't go to stir up others against Saul. There's nowhere in the text that gives any indication he's going to the troops and he's stirring them up. That he's trying to get them purposely to follow him and discount Saul. They love him, they follow him, but not because of his media campaign. David did not seek to tear down Saul even when Saul breaks his promise. Saul's reward for killing Goliath, I'll give you my oldest daughter, Merib. We read about it in the account that Saul decided David wouldn't get Merib. He gave her to somebody else. Saul. David's response, I wasn't that good anyway. I'm not that type of, I'm, I'm not really worthy of being related to the king. He didn't go on a campaign against Saul. Something else David does. Okay. David continued to remain, and I'm going to make three observations here faithful to the king. In verse, eight, uh, verse 5 of chapter 18, he goes wherever he is told to go. We read in verse 16 of chapter 18 that they love him because he went out before Israel. He is fighting the battles for the people. He is still doing what he's supposed to be doing. Chapter 19, verse 8, that he goes out to war and fights the Philistines. He is faithful to what he's been assigned to, have, to follow the king and the cause. He is respectful. It says in verse 18, when that issue of Merib in chapter 18, verse 18, where it talks about who am I, what's my life, that I should be related to the king. He does the same thing in verse 23, where he says, seem it a light thing to you, that a king's, to be a king's son-in-law, having that I am a poor man, to be lightly esteemed. He says, this is something that's just unbelievable he is helpful chapter 19 verse 9 even though he's been attacked by a spear when he says I'll still play for Saul I'll come again and I'll try to give him some soothing music to help him out David is helpful he is respectful he is faithful he is doing this even after he has been mistreated do you do that some relative or family member says something really caustic to you are you still helpful to them do you still try to lend a hand? Somebody, somebody did something that you don't like. They attacked your kid verbally. Are you willing to remain faithful to the cause of Christ, to the gospel, and still giving out the word? If you go to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, hold your finger and we'll come back to just a couple more minutes. Romans chapter 12, I want you to read a text. With me, that's talking about believers in the New Testament experiencing what David did. Romans chapter 12. Hey, please, all of you, take your iPhones, take your Bibles, turn here and follow this text. Mark it down. This is how you're supposed to act instead of following jealousy, retaliation, anger, upsetness, turning others against that person. <coughs> Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Recompense or repay to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy, the person who's done you wrong, the relative who had criticized you, the family member who took advantage of you. The co-worker who, who just, you know, they got the promotion by lying about you. The neighbor who, who they, you know, they're, they're, you're living next door to just a really tough situation. If your enemy hunger, feed him. If they thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on their head and be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what David did. That's what you're supposed to do. David as well did this. He remained open to reconciliation. This is where many believers stop. And yet the word of God calls for reconciliation in some of the hardest situations. In Matthew chapter 5, it talks about personal offenses. Something said, something done, some personal offense. And it says, if your brother, if somebody close to you has offended you, And they've really upset you. They've hurt you. And you come to worship. And in Bible days, you'd have to travel days to worship. Stop the worship. Reconcile with that person. Go back home. Take the trip of several days. Get back home. Then you come back. And then you make worship. He is saying in this text that if some teenager has snubbed you, has gossiped about you, you reconcile. You go to them and you take care of it. And yet in our world, uh, in this world, offenses are done all the time and it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be bitter. No, it isn't for the child of God. The children of God are supposed to live peaceably with one another. We are to be peoples that are spreading light, not darkness. Not gossip, not anger, not bitterness. We're supposed to be showing forgiveness and grace and kindness and help, even to those who hurt us. Should we take it to a realm that is really difficult? In the New Testament, couples who are married were to work at reconciliation. I know that divorce happens. I understand the scriptures when, it, when it's permitted, but it was never promoted supposed to work at reconciliation. But you don't understand. I understand the word of God. The word of God says work at reconciliation. I, I understand when differences arise in church. I understand it does. I, I, I get it that people get jealous of my tuft. <laughs> it's only Pastor Tony. That's the only one. Thank you. Okay. okay. I understand that we have differences. We don't all think the same. We don't all work at the same jobs. We don't all have the same opinions about food. Some of you like coconut, and I don't understand that, okay? Some of you even eat, what's that Pennsylvania Dutch stuff that's on the ground? Scrapple. Yeah, some of you even eat that. And then you come here and worship with that same mouth. I I just don't understand, okay? (laughs) we have differences and it's okay we can joke about some of those things it's fine but not to the point that you don't talk to one another you wouldn't fellowship with one another come on come on we're brothers and sisters in Christ you're going to live with them forever and ever there's no room for jealousy in a church does it happen yes is it wrong yes. And so what we need to do is we need to do what David did. That David was open to reconciliation. Think this through. He threw a spear once, but not just once. It says twice. And then David, what does he do? When Jonathan intervenes, David goes back and David makes himself, you know, here I am again with a big target. But David is willing And then David does this at chapter 20, after this has gotten really ridiculous. It's an interesting concept in chapter 20, verse 1. It's it's, it's profound. No wonder he is called the one that is acting wisely according to the word of God. David fled from Naoth in Ramah, came and said said before Jonathan, "'What have I done? What is my iniquity?' What is my sin before your dad, that he should seek my life? David wants reconciliation and seeks now for mediation. He is so determined on getting this thing right. Well, we know the end of the story, that it so happens with Saul. He tries, but he can't, because Saul's over the edge. But some of you don't try. Some of you haven't made effort. Some of you wouldn't even go back a second time. Some of you wouldn't forgive seven times 70. The grudge is there. The anger is there. The jealousy has taken over. David does this. He sought out godly friends. I think Jonathan is a godly friend. I think another godly friend in this whole thing is Samuel, where he runs to Raboth to get near Samuel to get advice. David, what strikes me as one of these individuals that when he gets burned, he doesn't do what others often do. That's it, I'm done. I'm never associating with people again. I'm going up to the Poconos, getting a cabin, and I'm going to be all by myself. David doesn't do that. David doesn't do that. And, And even though we might be loners, we still have responsibility to interact with the family of God. And so David is one, he seeks out godly friends. The last thought that is really important to me, he's open to constructive criticism. Did you catch that in verse 1 of 20 when I read it? What have I done? Jonathan, point out to me. Oops. Jonathan, point out to me. What do I need to change? What do I need to improve on? I got to tell you, there's very little in my life that I see that I need to work on. I'm not being arrogant, I'm just being, this is where I'm at. I, I do know there's some things, but I don't see them as well as Deb does. I don't see them as well as my co-workers see them. I don't see some of those things as much as you see them. And you know it's true for all of us. We easily deceive ourselves. It's a common problem in New Testament churches, Christians. We've, we've done our Christian thing and we say, hey, I, I, I think I've kind of pinnacled here. I've kind of done the best I can do. And I'm kind of okay with it. And David says, we've got a problem. What can I do to change? You tell me, Jonathan, what, to, what have I done in this relationship that I should change? Have you ever done that with a family member? You know, that jerky cousin, that brother or sister that they were, they were mom and dad's favorite? It doesn't bother you anymore, but they were mom and dad's favorite. And you don't talk to them because it doesn't bother you. But you don't have much relationship. Have you ever reached out and said, What can I do to change this? I'm open finally, and I said it was the final, I was wrong, David was able to do all this because the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Multiple passages. So we have the story of this guy, and what do we do with it? Let's do two things. If you see a pattern of jealousy in your life, deal with it. How do you do that? Number one, admit it. I, I, this was me. This was me as last week and then coming back and preparing even this message thinking through to stop and say, how many times have I admitted to God I've been jealous? Huh. That's not big on my list. Admit it. Do this, confess it. Confess it as wrong to God and then confess it if it's an ongoing problem with another person, go to them. Confess it. Ask them for, the, for forgiveness, for the bitterness, the jealousy, the angst you've held towards them. Then number three, pray for them to be successful. Pray for them to be successful in relationships. Pray for them to be an individual who gets closer to the rest of the family. In fact, why don't you thank God for the very thing that bugs you? They've got a fuller head of hair. They don't need to wear glasses. They've got musical talents. Thank you, God, for their successes. And then would you do this? Reaffirm God's goodness to yourself. You see where jealousy always comes from? is you don't think God has given you a fair hand. You don't like what you have compared to what they have. God has given you everything you need. God has made you special. The reason you're jealous is you just haven't come to the conclusion that God has given you everything you need and that you are really good the way God made you. I'm not talking spiritually good. I'm talking... Just in this sense, God's working in you. God is, God is, He's made you right. And reaffirm, what I've got for hair is good enough. What I've got for vision is good enough. What I've got for abilities is good enough. What I've got for a church family is good enough. I don't need to be jealous of any other preacher. I have got the best church family in the world for Deb and I but I need to reaffirm that that God you've been good to me you have given me everything that I need and then what you do is you minister to others washing feet gets you to take your eyes off yourself now if you're an individual who's being targeted by jealousy what do you do everything we just mentioned with this premise, always do right even when you're done wrong and that would include exactly what David did, be wise be faithful, be helpful, be respectful return good for the evil just you do what you're supposed to do now we say all of this with this premise that you are able to do this because you have a love for God in your heart that you are an individual that already loves the Lord Jesus Christ and that you have the Spirit of God living within you. But maybe, just maybe, you're here this morning, you haven't come regularly or you've come a few times, maybe this is going to be too difficult because you have to, first of all, have a relationship with Jesus Christ that the Spirit can be residing in you. You have to have a forgiveness of all that jealousy and anger that's been in the past and it needs to be under the blood of Jesus Christ. You need to know that you're on your way to heaven with the idea that I know eventually I'm going to be with Christ, and so that gives me incentive to be able to be right with others and right with God. If you're here this morning, you're not born again, we want to give you that opportunity. We're having our staff head for those doors right over there. They're going to be available. Those of you at home that are watching, If you're interested in contacting, call us. Send us an email. Check our website. Send us a message. We'll get somebody back to you ASAP to show you from the Bible how you can be sure you're on your way to heaven. That's the most important thing. You who are here while I pray, if you want to talk with somebody about your eternal destiny or other spiritual matters, get up. Go talk to those individuals in private down the hallway. Make sure that you have Christ's Spirit living within you before you go out and live amongst others. Father, thank you so much for this simple lesson. I don't know if it meant anything to anybody else, but Lord, it sure was good for me to be challenged this way. It's good for me to reflect. It's good for me to check my attitude towards family, towards co workers, towards friends, towards church, towards other preachers that I know. It was good for me. Challenging. Refreshing. Help me then to, with the decisions I've made and some changes I want to work on. Help me to follow through. For any of my friends who might think the same thing or might have a tender thought that way, I pray that they too would have the victory of the Spirit to bring to mind what we need to work on. Thank you for David's life. Thank you for recording the example of Saul. Help none of us to be dumb like Saul was, to walk in a foolish way. Help all of us to be as wise as that teenager David, to do right even when we're done wrong. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. God bless you. See you later.